Hi. Uh, my name is, summer's a weird time for coming to church, so if you haven't seen me for the last little bit, my, or we haven't met, uh, my name's Nick. I'm an elder in training here, uh, and I have the honor of delivering the penultimate message of our summer series, uh, focusing on Psalm 139 today. Um, Psalm 139 is one of the most famous sort of poems slash prayers in the Bible, and pastors uh, Spencer and Matt uh, have done a really good job already of unpacking the first three sections as we've sort of divided it up. I've got the second last one today. Um, I'm going to begin by reading that passage. So Psalm 139, starting at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So, this psalm hits on some incredibly powerful and challenging theological and frankly existential uh, concepts. In the previous messages, if you've had a chance to hear any of them, you'll know because we've tackled some of those already. This morning is not going to be particularly different as far as that's concerned. And if you're familiar with the passage or if you've skimmed ahead, uh, definitely not distracted in previous sermons, but just skimmed ahead in earlier services, um, you might have paused over these verses, particularly verses 19 to 22. And so with the sheer weightiness of what we're going to talk about this morning in mind, we're going to do what we always do in the morning before we really get into it and take a moment and take a deep breath or several deep breaths and checking with ourselves um, and with Jesus. Let's just take a minute. Lord, you've given us these words. They are strange. They don't align very well with a lot of the ways that we think. And I think, at least I confess, there are lots of words in your word that don't really align with the way that I think. But these ones sort of immediately make me uncomfortable. But you put them here for a reason. And so, Holy Spirit, I would ask this morning that you would settle our hearts, that you would help us to take these words in hand and to really reckon with them, to not just casually take them up because they are heavy and they do matter, but also not to pretend to take them up and then just set them aside. I pray that you give us the grace to do that, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So, uh, to help us track the sort of emotional and thematic trajectory of the psalm, I want you to imagine with me that, so this is, while it is a psalm, it's also a prayer. And so I want you to imagine you're in a prayer circle with David. Set aside the impossibility of that, chronologically speaking. And you look up to David. David is an older brother in the faith for us. We do look up to him. And everybody's eyes are closed. And then David starts to pray. And at the beginning, he's waxing beautifully on God's knowledge, his perfect knowledge, while he also grapples with how vulnerable and even exposed that that knowledge makes him feel. And then he follows that line as he prays. He follows that line of thinking and starts to unpack God's deep, thought-by-thought, cell-by-cell awareness of the human person, of himself, even. And then he gets to the end of that. He's prayed through, and then he just pauses, and in the silence of the church basement or your living room, you just hear... And then he bursts out with verse 17. And he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. David's just blown away. He has prayed and sang and thought his way into an honest and genuine wonder at who God is. That's the power of contemplation, of spending time and thinking over the things that God has done and who he is. And David lands there. And for us, these two little verses at the beginning uh, can do three things for us. It has to be three things. That's the rule. Um, Number one. uh, First, uh, these two verses serve to remind us of the psalm's core theme. David is a good writer, so his words don't go all over the place. He has a core idea in mind. And the core idea of this psalm, though there's lots to be said, is a contemplation on the perfect knowledge of God, especially at the human level. So we have that as sort of a brief summary. Second, uh, this gives us a model for prayer. What happens next is, these sort of four verses that follow, is technically a petition. It's a little dressed up, but it is a petition, a request to God. But before David gets there, he spends all this time, 18 verses, in contemplation. And that is a good model for us, that we shouldn't just jump into requesting things of God. We see this model in the Lord's Prayer as well. It starts with, we know it, uh, well, we might, maybe we know it. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's just a quick summary of everything God is about and everything we know of him. And then we say, give us this day our daily bread. And we see that model in this prayer as well. Contemplation before petition. And then lastly, it forces us to reckon with the verses that come after the real, it's rude to say the real meat of the passage. Every single verse is packed with meaning. But these heavy words that come next We have to reckon with them not as the wild, passionate words of an ancient military-driven king, as we might do, but as the well-considered, reflective words of a man that knew the very same God that we did, and as far as Scripture is concerned, very, very well. And so we can't just set these words aside. And that brings us to verses 19 and 22. Let's just read them again. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. 
O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. We shouldn't pretend these words don't seem harsh. They should seem harsh. Harkening back to praying live with David in the living room, this would be the moment when you sort of crack your eye open and look around the circle like, is David okay? Everybody okay? This is taking a left turn. But David has landed here intentionally. He's spent 18 verses reflecting on who God is, on the perfect knowledge of God. And with these next verses, it's as though he suddenly looked around after staring at the perfection of God, suddenly looked around at the world saw it filled with brokenness and injustice, with people acting against this knowledge of God. And then he turns back to God and he says, will you deal with this? How are you allowing this to be like this? If you have this perfect knowledge, why are you just letting this be? Will you please wade in to this brokenness? And he uses intense language. But I want us to see that this when we break it down, is not an unreasonable response to David's contemplation. If God is everything that David has been declaring him to be, and as Christians we believe he is, then the imperfections of this world ultimately tie back to a misunderstanding or an ignorance or a purposeful rebellion against God. And from the mountaintop experience of David's prayer, he just can't believe God allows anyone to stand against him. And so David's petition, his ask after contemplation is that God would bring justice to the world as he understands it. Five years ago, uh, about, I was a pastoral intern here at Church of the City. I didn't ultimately become a pastor. Um, I was also working full-time at a charitable foundation. I still work there. My office at that time had recently become obsessed with a business author named Patrick Lencioni. And Patrick writes uh, what he calls business fables about common business challenges. He writes really, really well. And very short, too, which is nice. And when I started my internship here, I had just read Lencioni's book, Death by Meeting, which basically gives a paradigm of how to make meetings not horrible, which I was a big fan of because I don't like meetings. And so I read it, and I was like, this is so good. How has everyone not read this book and immediately applied it and made all of our lives better? And I had attended about two staff meetings at Church of the City when I took it upon myself to order an additional copy of this book and hand it to Matthew Naismith. And I said, hey, you should read this. And Matt ran those meetings. (laughs) And he was very gracious about it. And I think he did read it, to his credit. And he actually did apply some things. But I was rude. (laughs) Okay, that's not the way you do things. But I was so caught up in this what for me seemed like a life-changing paradigm shift that I couldn't believe that anyone, that everyone wasn't just taking this up. I was like, come on, stop living in the dark. Let's do it differently. And so I did the English major equivalent of lashing out, and I threw a book at it. It was great. Now, the Bible is not a business book, and Patrick Lencioni is not God. Um, but I want us, again, to be able to empathize with where David goes with this. Because I think what he does, again, though the words are intense, is a very human response to encountering something that changes everything. Because we come to that and we say, how is this not everywhere? And how is this not being applied across the board regardless of what people think?
David reflects on God himself and it crescendos into a call for justice, a call for God to make things right. Now, the Christian longing for justice is an old and established idea. It's present in the very beginning of the Bible. It's present all the way to the very, just about the very end of Revelation. Uh, But the particulars of how that longing for justice, for God to make things right in our day-to-day lives can feel a bit foggy at times. I do not expect that I'll be able to lift that fog in 20 minutes, um, but I hope that we can present some guidelines and ask some questions to start or continue that process. So, how do we long for justice as Christians? Number one, with full humility and full confidence. This is a dramatic sentence, but I am sticking to it. The Christian longing for justice balances on a knife edge. It is precarious. On the one hand, God, by revealing himself to us, also reveals that the world is broken. He shows us the ideal, and therefore we know that things are not as they should be. The world is full of injustice. And he calls Christians to stand against it. In the book of Amos, in the Old Testament, before we even knew about Jesus, Amos the prophet speaks and tells the nation of Israel that their worship, their singing, their sacrifices are sour in the mouth of God because there are injustices in their society. That the poor and the widow and the refugee and the stranger are not being cared for. He says your worship is worthless as long as these injustices are there. And that call is the same. We are not called to sit back and leave the world to its own devices. That's not what Jesus did, and that's not what we are to do. We have through God a vision of the ideal, and that should drive us to confidence in our action. We have an idea of how the world should be. On the other hand, though, our belief as Christians carries the core truth that God has been gracious and forgiving towards us, and that that same posture should show up in the way that we treat others. And so while we have this confidence in bringing justice to bear, we also have to carry this humility because Christian justice is not about morally superior people wading in to clean up other people's messes. We know that cognitively if we think about it, but it's hard at times. You just read the book. You're like, this is life-changing. Come on, do it. But there's that balance between confidence and humility. And the trick is that confidence historically errs towards a savior complex. It gets too aggressive and it forces itself on others. But then humility errs towards passivity and doesn't do anything at all. And so we have to have both to save us from going over to one side or the other. Number two, our longing for justice should recognize what's happening in North American culture right now and the church's place in it. North American culture is struggling very actively with both sides of the paradox that we just talked about. On some issues, there's a ton of confidence to see justice done. But that has come with the dangers of the savior complex. Confidence that if we just buckled down, we could fix such and such an issue, and that's starting to morph into intense cause fatigue for people that were like, yep, we're gonna end homelessness by 2019. We're going to find Coney in 2012. We didn't. And then for those that are actually experiencing suffering, 
it just turns to frustration because it's like, what are you, what's happening here? How are, we, how are we not digging into this? But then on other issues, the attempt is to be absolutely gracious and understanding of differences. We would call this tolerance. But then out of that comes the struggle towards passivity in the face of issues that really need to be confronted directly. And so culture needs to hear from the church on how these two ideas exist in tension. You can't have just one or the other. Or rather, you can. That's the default human posture. But to do that leads inevitably to problems. So culture needs to hear from us. But we also have to acknowledge that right now the church is, not, is, is often not recognized as a force for justice. Some of this is tied to differing perspectives on what justice is. And so we don't bow in that respect. Some of it is just tied to anti-religious sort of philosophy that would say faith is a bad motivation to do anything. We're certainly not going to get on board with that. But some of it is entirely legitimate. And we need to acknowledge where we failed. Especially in areas where the church has held significant societal power, which we did for a long time in a lot of places. And it wasn't us, but it was us. So the sum total of that is that we have some ground to make up when it comes to becoming trusted voices and helpers in the pursuit of justice, certainly in certain spheres. If you've ever lost the trust of someone, you know that the way to regain that trust is often longer than you'd like, and it requires a lot more listening than speaking, however confident we are that we have the truth. And that's hard, because the good news of Jesus has incredibly important things to say about justice. But our aim as Christians should not be to simply speak the truth to people, but to give them the absolute best chance of hearing that truth, which at this moment in time may require more patience than we're used to. Last, um, we need to be relentless in our learning and listening to the Spirit as we pursue justice. We've had some obvious blind spots surface in the last decades, um, and the church has slowly started to acknowledge those. But the temptation with that is to believe, great, so we found our blind spots, we're good. But that's not how blind spots work. As soon as you discover them, they're not blind spots anymore, and that means there's probably other blind spots. And it's not to get down on ourselves, that is what humanity grapples with. But we can't trust that just because we found a couple that we don't have new ones for our generation and our time. And then the other temptation is to believe that culture will always be at hand to illuminate our blind spots because culture has done a couple of those for us and that hasn't been good, but at least it's shown us. But we can't rely on culture to do that because culture has its own blind spots and its own agenda. And so in the pursuit of justice, as we step forward with confidence in humility and an awareness of our culture, we have to just double down on depending on the Holy Spirit to know what just action looks like in our reality and to have our blind spots revealed. I'm being super intentional this morning of not making a list of injustices. And we can feel like, yep, here's all the things we have to do. Uh, that's not because I don't think there is one. It's just because I think that becomes distracting. 
Um, and I think one of the beauties of Christian community is that God calls each of us as individuals and in groups to do different work in his kingdom. And we're not all as fired up about all aspects. And that's all right. But the one thing, it's a small thing that I would say, is that if we're talking about a list, one push for justice in the church that I would raise an eyebrow at and challenge us on is a perspective that tries to remove people from the list of who deserves justice and care. Not because that's a super simple thing, but I think that's a dangerous road to go down and we should be considerate of that. Okay. Uh, Final two verses. It just gets heavier, guys. I don't know what to tell you. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David, the man after God's own heart. Circa whatever year that was. This is a continuation of the previous verses. David's still railing. He's still responding to the fruit of his contemplation on God's perfect knowledge. He can't understand those that stand against God. And he declares his hatred for those that do. The first thing that I would like us to do as we read these words is to cop to the fact that it feels really good to draw lines like this. We don't like these words. These make us cringe, and the fact that they're in the Bible is particularly uncomfortable. But it feels good when things are black and white because it simplifies things for us. Neuroscientists talk about unconscious bias, that our brain literally fast-tracks, creates shortcuts, that if someone seems different, just clips. And it's like, well, we should be cautious, at the very least. Because it takes a lot of work to go person by person and say, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And so we take shortcuts. And then we also do that consciously. Because it's easier. It makes it easier to take action when the lines are clear. It's easier to make hard decisions and it's easier to know who to prioritize when you can just say, yep, there's those and then there's those. Great, nice. And this is true with deeply important things like theology and science and international politics, but it's also true with really trivial things like sports and brand choices and fruit on pizza. (laughs) You monsters. So we gotta acknowledge that at a purely human level, There's a part of us that will resonate with this kind of behavior. Human history has tons of examples. It feels good to get this kind of clarity on things. And as Christians, there's another layer of resonance because we believe that the universe has objective standards of good and evil. Our own ability to align with and understand that paradigm notwithstanding. And so as we've already discussed, we're called as Christians to take action against evil. There are lines we draw. And so a part of our hearts rise at this kind of clear moral language. And that shouldn't surprise us. But at the same time, we should know that the tendency to draw hard lines has been the cause of a massive amount of suffering throughout human history, both outside the church and in. So much evil has been done in the name of, well, he's my enemy, so I'll do what I need to do to protect myself, or my family, my country, or my whatever. To protect the faith. 
And so if your heart recoils at some of this language, that makes sense too. This is dangerous territory and we've stumbled on it often. And we need to constantly ask the Spirit for help in navigating it. Next, in line with the paradox of the previous two verses, we can't tackle the idea of the enemies of God without considering the New Testament testimony that everyone in the church was once an enemy of God. That nothing we have done is responsible for our shift from enemy to impossibly to friend. Because we sit there now, but again, it's not about moral superiority. We've been won by Christ and no other. And so I just want to read two passages that hammer on this truth. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We cannot have this conversation about the enemies of God without burying ourselves to some extent with the awareness that we were once at a time. David knew this as he wrote this psalm. He had had the Bathsheba episode, as far as we can tell. So he's, he's not just pretending about this. He had lived in opposition to God's justice and his actions. And we have even more awareness because we have the New Testament. We have the picture of Christ's sacrifice to know what Degree, what are our enmity with God required to fix things? And so any discussion about those, those outside of God's family needs to be done in consideration of the fact that we were once as well. And we didn't get here because we did a good job. Lastly, and it's a for real lastly now, um, though it risks digging Deeper, no. It risks dipping into a deeper discussion about how we approach Scripture than even this entire service can contain. Um, But we need to realize that while the Psalms are divinely inspired and that God has ensured their integrity and value for teaching and correcting from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, the Bible itself also clarifies that there were things about God that were revealed through the life, teaching, and death of Christ that were not known to those who came before. Uh, it might be, not be difficult to grasp this at a conceptual level because it fits sort of our narrative paradigms. You're like, yep, okay, so the arrival of a deity to earth living would mark a turning point in human history. That's fair. But the fact that that needs to influence to some extent the way that we read scripture might be a bit harder to get around. Again, whole books, books and books and books about that whole idea But all this is to say is that while David worshipped the same God that we do, there are things we know about God's plan and will for this world that David simply didn't. It didn't mean he wasn't a man after God's own heart. But we have, the New Testament talks about the privilege we have to know this fully revealed restorative narrative that came through Jesus. 
one of the things that David didn't know was God's ultimate approach to his enemies and his expectation for his people towards those we might call our enemies, which is simply this, to love them. Matthew 5, 43 to 48 records Jesus' words. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This would likely be very near to David's understanding of the world, even under God. But Jesus calls us far higher than that. He continues, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This command given by Jesus is, hopefully it's obvious, but it's the work of a lifetime for every one of us. If we had just this, we could just run with it for a long time. But this is where we need to land as we zero in on David's crescendo of passion for God's greatness and knowledge. For him, it turns to a cry that those who stand against God would be removed. But for us, the call is a little different. We do cry for injustice to cease, and we work against it. But we do not see the death of those who commit it as the answer. Because we believe a different death was the answer and is the answer still. That's not free from challenges. It's still not an easy pitch. There are many people in our world, likely some in this room, certainly me, on days of particular existential and ethical fog, where I ask, how can we even claim to love someone that we call an enemy? How do we do that? And there are people that would philosophize to say, that's not possible. You can't do that. It's a good question. Language is weird. And at a certain point, we may just have to give the answer with full seriousness that somehow Jesus did it. Somehow Jesus said, love your enemies, and acknowledged that both were possible. But there's an air of impossibility in Jesus' command here. And I honestly think that's the most important thing about our attitude towards justice as Christians. That it's impossible The call is for us to balance a heart for justice and a heart of compassion. Both are good, but both go astray in isolation. Human history is a record of that, primarily on the justice side, I think. But Jesus calls us to both. He calls us to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And we can't do that as humans. And I would argue that we can't do that as people that know about Jesus either that if we're just vaguely aware of what he's done. And we can't do that as people that have a solid grasp of biblical ethics either. We can only do it by turning to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis like Jesus did and asking for the help that Jesus promised us to live in a way that is both just and compassionate.
And that's the hope that we have. And I think it's important as we consider the life of Jesus, it's easy to look at the parts that seem digestible and say, good, I can do that. There are lots of things we can do by ourselves. And we're like, good, I'm executing. Good for me. And I think the real meat of a lot of the Christian life come when we have these impossible paradoxes where we actually say, how would I do both of those things at the same time? And that will actually drive us to Jesus because we actually come to the end of ourselves and have to turn to him for help and thank the Lord he is gracious and willing to give it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word is sharp as any two-edged sword. And I thank you for your words. And I pray that even though this is a colossally large topic and there is so much to learn and think and reflect and it is shifting and changing as well and only your Holy Spirit can carry us through that, I pray that you have done something this morning in our hearts to help us turn towards this good work that you call us to. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you saw fit to save us, to be gracious and compassionate, and that you did it in a just way, as painful and terrible as it was, so that we stand justified before you now. And I pray that that would turn into our deep desire to see more and more people justified before you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.